Support for WIPR's podcasts comes from Brightview Senior Living. Since 1999, Brightview has proudly served Greater Baltimore with vibrant, independent living, assisted living, memory care, and enhanced care. Find a community near you at brightviewseniorliving.com. Because journalism is, if it's practiced properly, it's ruthless, it's cynical, it's, it's funny, it's iconoclastic, and it has no regard for authority. My father, who was in the Marine Corps, had always said to all of us, if you're ever in trouble, find a Marine. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Stoop Storytelling Series podcast. I'm Jessica Hankin. And I'm Laura Wexler. And this week on the podcast, I'll show you two tales of super successful people fueled by a desire to prove their haters wrong. Before we get started, we want to thank Men to Acupuncture, which is a... Enjoyable, beautiful, low-stress way of getting acupuncture. Is there high-stress ways of getting acupuncture now that I think about I it? I feel like if the needles guess, are bloody when no. they are putting them in, yeah, that would be stressful. That's another thing. Maybe it's that fact that you can just drop in and, you know, you don't have to really worry about all the logistics of yeah. making an appointment and stuff. I mean, you can still do that as well. Anyway, you should go there. They're great people. And tell them the stoop sent you. Yep. Okay. So this first story is from a gentleman named David Simon, who many listeners will recognize as the creator of The Wire and The Corner and a new show about corrupt police in Baltimore. So this story comes from very early Stoop era, like 2007, yep. probably. We were one-year-old one yes. babies at that point. And there's a very memorable line um, in the story that you'll hear. Um, but yeah, take a listen to this Stoop story from David Simon. Well, uh, state of mind. Blaine Pano was the kid who pushed me to the ground on the blacktop in third grade. Lisa Jones, that was the girl who, when we played spin the bottle and it landed on her, wouldn't kiss me in front of all the other kids. Yeah. <laughs> Bitch. Um, uh, uh, Dave Thomas was the guy, the paste-up artist, who cut the last graph of that story in 1985 about the kids in the fire hydrants in East Baltimore. I've never forgiven him. And as you can see, I keep these names. I treasure them. I will confess to you now that anything I've ever accomplished as a writer, as somebody doing TV, as, some, as anything I've ever done in life, you know, down to like cleaning up my room, has been accomplished because I was going to show people that they were fucked up and wrong and that I was, you know, I was the fucking center of the universe and the sooner they got hip to that, the happier they would all be. I mean... It was real, if you've seen Superman, the good one, it's real Neil before Zod country. I mean, you know, that's what's going on in my head. So, the, naturally, the place where I needed to be was in journalism. Because journalism is, if it's practiced uh, properly, it's ruthless, it's cynical, it's, it's funny, it's iconoclastic, and it has no regard for authority. And I mean that sincerely. My dad took me to see the front page when I was about 10 years old at Arena Stage, and I absorbed every line. I mean, I wanted to be Hildy Johnson. And I thought it was going to be like that when you got there. So I went to my high school paper. And I w everywhere I go, the pattern's the same. Ingratiate yourself. Make them think you're normal. Make them think you're there, your friend. And then, you know, a assault the institution from within, you know. <laughs> Editor of my high school paper, I swear to God, the, the guy wanted to fire me halfway through the year. Couldn't figure out how to do it. I was always like one inch away from getting fired. 
um, and would manage to eke out to the end of the year, and and the paper would would come out. It would be a good paper, but the guy would be, you know, I was just. It was like they let the heretic into the church. You know, he was fucking nuns. He was. It was just terrible. <laughs> Whatever they thought scholastic journalism was supposed to be, gone off the charts. College got get the University of Maryland. I edited the Diamondback. I was one vote away from the board firing me for like half the year. They hated my guts. You know, paper came out. It was fine, but they couldn't figure out where. Where Demon Boy came from. <laughs> I get hired by the Baltimore Sun. I'm 22 years old. I'm the youngest reporter in the newsroom. And it turns out that for the first time in my life, you know, Mr. Iconoclastic, no, no institution deserves to stand, including, you know, certainly anyone that would hire me doesn't deserve my respect. Um, <laughs> I love this place. And I have a really good editor. And I have the guy who hires me is like intellectually honest, you know, I mean, he's really a smart guy. Not because he hired me. I mean, he was smart before I ever walked in the room. I mean, but I would talk to, you know, I'll say their names, Steve Luxenberg, Rebecca Corbett. These were very good editors. And also, I'm very young, and, and the place has a tradition. I mean, this is the place of Mencken, of Frank Kent, of, of, uh, of William Manchester. You know, it's real. It's like you can, you can touch things that you, you can be proud of. And I s fall in love with the place. For the first time in my life, I fall in love with an institution. And... I don't know how to react to that. I just have to do good work for its own sake. I have to go out and report the story and come back and, you know, and, and love it for what it is. It's not perfect. It's not the greatest newspaper in the world, but it's a good newspaper, and they gave me a job, and, and I'm young enough to be uh, impressed by it. And uh, I don't know what to do with that, but I'm basically happy, and it's like the least ambitious I am in my life until it gets sold out of town. And these guys come in from Philly, the white guys from Philly. And I say that with all the contempt that you can muster for the phrase white guys. <laughs> I mean, you know, soulless motherfucker. You know, everything that Malcolm X said in that book, you know, before he, before he got converted back to humanity. No, no, no. He was, he was right in the first. These guys were so without. And, I mean, it was the kind of journalism I can't describe. You know, how do I describe bad journalism? It's not that it's lazy. It's that whenever they hear the word Pulitzer, like they, they become tumescent. They become engorged. They become <laughs> even the, like even like the, the, the even the, the puss sound, you know. They would they, all they wanted to do was win prizes. There was this one guy, Marimo, um, a guy like had Asperger's syndrome. He was he was the he, uh, he, Mike Litwin, a very smart columnist who they ran out of town, said he was the dumbest man to ever win two Pulitzers. And <laughs> It really was true. I mean, one of his Pulitzers was for, uh, the, the, in Philly, the police dogs kept biting too many people. This motherfucker won a Pulitzer for dogs biting men. The dog bite man story? You know, the, you know the check about this? And the thing about it is, like, whenever you got in a conversation with him, I invariably, within 20 seconds, it went around, have you read my series on the, and, and you would have to read it, you know? The guy was, the guy was lethal in, in, at, a, at a party. And, and it was all about like these five-part series, you know, the Baltimore Sun has learned, put, put it all in bullets because God forbid you should write a transition and, you know, over-report over the motherfucker, over-report it and have it be simple. You know, the dogs are biting too many people. Not about the whole nature of like, you know, race relations in South Philly and, and where the jobs went and, you know, why the world is not working anymore. You know, not, don't go with a big issue. Narrow it down and then write the fuck out of it and then write a bunch of stories about how you got a law passed to make it better and then send that all to the Pulitzer board. That, that was their move, and, and they knew it. The other guy, Carol, was this, um, he just looked the part. 
you know. I mean, this is how I look. I look like, you know, who's ever going to give this guy any real authority? You know, keep him, make him the police reporter and keep him out of the newsroom. Carol had, the, like, the white hair, the, the patrician. He looked, the, he looked like a guy who was going to walk around and make your paper great. You know, we used to say quietly in the newsroom after he got there for a year, we got the wrong John Carroll. But he, these, these two guys, they do, I watched them single-handedly destroy the sun. And eventually I left. I got a TV show. Now, you know, I got, at first it wasn't my TV show. I worked on Homicide. But they gave me a few episodes here and there to play with. All right. And yeah, well, it's in reruns. I don't get any money. Um, they, they gave me some, and, and so I did like a little episode on the Baltimore Sun, and I had a few little nasty snark lines about the, the white guys from Philly, but it didn't come out real well. The person who was the hero reporter was uh, this actress, Joan Chen. She was, she was quite good, but she, English was a second language, so the, you know, all that fast patter of the newsroom just died, and it was lame. It, it's sort of like I took my shot, and it sucked. So I let it alone for a while. Then, you know, I get the wire on, the wire's going good. Well, last year, why not name a character Marimo? <laughs> All right, it won't be Marimo. It'll be a police lieutenant. He'll be an asshole. But, but you know, it won't be like Marimo. You know, he won't tell the story about the dog bite. Man, you know, it, but I'll use the name. It'll, be, it'll kind of be a little kick, you know. Kicking the ass for the guy. He's up and he, at the time he was the, he moved on, he'd, he'd gotten promoted. They always, they, always, they always do better. He was the head of NPR. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Carol was the editor of the LA Times by this time, you know. Nobody, you know. Journalism is about uh, burying your dead and, and running away. So, um, anyway, I do this thing and a funny thing happens, which is instead of it being the passive aggressive, sort of surrounded by sycophants, ruining a good newsroom from within guy that Marimo was, the actor comes in and he's his own guy and, he, and he's not passive aggressive, he's aggressive aggressive. He plays it over the top. He's a good actor, but he's an asshole. It's nothing like Marimo. So I've used the name now and I, and I got nothing inside. I'm no, no joy. So this year, we're actually doing the Baltimore Sun as part of the story. How can I resist, right? We built a whole fucking soundstage in Columbia. Reporters used to work at the Baltimore Sun come up to the top of this warehouse and they go, holy shit, like down to the desks. You know, like we, we have the nameplates of everybody I worked with down on the desk. I, I, am, I, am, I mean, my fantasy for revenge is now like, you know, art departments are working on it, you know. I mean, think about it. Vince Peranio is going, you know, does this make you mad? Does it make you mad now, you know? I mean, you know, until I have the full nightmare, I'm not satisfied. And, all right, I'm going to change the names. You know, lawyers say, hey, change the names. Okay, it's Klebenau. It's not Marimau. And it's, it's not uh, John C. Carroll III. It's James Whiting III, you know. But definitely get an actor with the silver hair and the patrician look, you know. So I cast them all. Something weird happens on the way to the, to the forum, which is... Um, First of all, the actors take over. And second of all, now that it's the main story and not just a little joke aside, I have to sort of fall in love with the story. I have to believe I'm doing this story, you know, and spending HBO's money and doing this for something a little bit bigger than, than doing this to my old asshole bosses, you know? You know, you can't really go down to, into Chris Albrecht's office out in L.A. and go, well, Chris, you know, the story doesn't make a lot of sense, but these guys are really pissed off, you know? 
Chris Albrecht is saying, you know, what's it about? So it has to be about sort of more complicated shit, more like the journalism that they never respect. It's got to be about what's happened to newspapers in this decade and, and, and what's going on with the Internet and, and why, uh, uh, why out-of-town ownership is bad and why Chicago is running the papers into the ground. And it gets more complicated. And now, instead of it being like two-dimensional villains, they start to become wholly human. They're, dealing, they're contending with various forces. They start becoming human-sized. And then we hire actors, and the actors are good. And the actors are asking questions. Well, wouldn't I say this? And, you know, isn't that a little simplistic? And, and you, you have to go, well, good point. I'll change that line. And pretty soon, pretty soon there's a dynamic that it's no longer about these two guys. It's almost an afterthought that I was sticking my finger in their eye. In fact, I'm not even thinking about it anymore. Now I'm just trying to have the story work for the story's sake. And then even more stuff happens, which is Carol, who, by the way, Total bastard. I mean, it, <laughs> there was a guy making shit up at the sun, right? There was. There was a guy making, I mean, Jason Blair shit. He was making it up at the sun. And, you know, when people would come to him and say, John, he, he's, he's cooking it. He's, he's cooking the shit. He would say, well, people are just jealous. That's what they always say. When, you know, every newsroom has one. When anyone comes out of the woodwork to say he cooked it, uh, they're jealous of his stuff. So... You know, this is the guy that I knew. I mean, I remember talking to this son of a bitch on the phone uh, and saying, John, you know, after, after they retracted his third story in a row, saying, John, I told you after the next one that you were going to, you know, the guy makes it up. And John said, really? You told me twice. What were the other two stories? And I said, if I was the major, if I was the editor-in-chief of a major metropolitan daily, I would remember if I had to retract one story. You don't remember three? You know, Jesus, that's a career, John. So he's a bad guy. But... When he goes to L.A., he stands up like a fucking hero and takes a bullet because Chicago's trying to ruin the L.A. Times. And he, he, he now retires as a hero of journalism. He outlives his, his vileness. It's like, it's like somehow Stalin got, you know, you know some, somehow Stalin got elected to the, you know, uh, 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 given an honorary degree from Oxford or something. I, I, you know, but literally, like in journalism, you say John Carroll. is John Carroll. What a, you know, oh, what he did in L.A. So he, he's like... Like, he's gone. I, I got nothing for junk. And Marimo, the other day I'm reading the Romanesco site, you know, and I'm just happening to read it because I still consider myself a reporter for some reason. And he's got, he's got cancer. He's got, um, uh, he's now at the Philadelphia Inquirer and he's got, he's got prostate cancer. And as much as I hate the simplistic and uh, insecure and, and limited way that he viewed journalism and, and how much he, you know, he, he, he screwed up and, and chased the talent out of the sun and was part of the problem. I don't wish anything bad on anybody in any personal way. It, it takes the edge off. It certainly ruins your nemesis for you. It takes the edge off the grudge. It, it, I mean, I want him to get well. I want his family to have him around forever. I want him to, 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 to not be personally unhappy. Um, I just want him to be mad at me. But not so now I, you know I look at this thing and I've got this whole big set out in Columbia, and I got these actors running around, and I've got all these inside jokes written on the page, and it amounts to jack shit, you know, and it's like I've lived my whole life on the basis of the grudge, you know, it's like everybody from Blaine Pano, everybody I told you about on, when these guys crossed the Baltimore Sun, it was like it was I felt this breath of fresh air coming back into my body. It was like. I know what this is. This is the grudge. This, I can run for miles on this. I can run for years on this. I might write three, four television shows. 
just to stick a finger in the, you know, it was like I felt this, was, this has been fuel my whole life. I've never done anything good or worthy out of a good or worthy motive. It's always been, I swear to God, I don't know about other people. I've always done it to show people that they were absolutely wrong about me and, and that, uh, that uh, you know, any ill thought they ever thought about me was utterly unjustified and that, you know, I'm, I'm basically right about everything. And, and, everyone, and my enemies are wrong, and, and if you stop me on the street, I'll be happy to explain it to you. So I, this is where I end up. I end up with the best grudge. These guys were great. They were fuel for 10 years of my life. I, on some level, I hate them as much as the day I met them. And, uh, and now uh, I got nothing. I got... <laughs> I got a set. I got. I got a. I got a million dollar set in a warehouse off of some place called Snowden River Parkway. That looks exactly like the Baltimore Sun. That's staffed by people who look like they worked at the Baltimore Sun in 1994. And I don't know what it means. Thank you. Yeah, so that that line, like everything I've ever done that has been good in my career has been a fuck you to somebody who said I couldn't do it. I feel like that's like so many people in the industry who are successful. Yeah, I guess that's true. That is like a motive. I mean, and he's objectively so successful. Maybe that's why I'm not as successful is that I haven't. You don't think you have a little bit of that in you? I think fuck you to the haters. (laughs) I mean it as lovingly. I more would just be like, "Hey guys, <laughs> maybe not. Let's let's not do that." I don't know. You've heard me. You've seen yeah, me. All I right. mean, you know, listen. We've been at this together a long time, lady. Uh, I'm just saying. All right. Well, there's a reason why. Apparently, I do. So I'm going to embrace that and do it more. Um, but we are not going to say that to Baltimore Magazine, which is our <laughs> <would> be weird <laughs> and very nice sponsor of this deep storytelling series podcast and was our partner for a show we just did last week at the Baltimore Museum of Industry. So you can find them at baltimoremagazine.com and on the newsstand. All right. This next storyteller is someone that we are just so grateful has um, graced the stoop stage twice now. Uh, first back uh, in 2008, and then she again told a story just a few months back. Her name is Dana Moore, and she is absolutely a badass. And she's currently the chief equity officer for Baltimore City, but she's had an incredible career trajectory leading up to that. And this allows you a window into how she got to where she is today. Take a listen. I have really the best mother in the whole wide world. Um, She uh, taught all of us uh, a lot of things. I remember uh, so much. Um, And a lot of your stories that you guys share, you don't even realize how much it intersects with with my my own life. And we'll talk about that some other time. But um, she really taught us, I I remember the songs. Uh, The first song I remember is I'm a Little Teapot short and stout. And when I was talking about that, I realized that was very um, self-affirming. I kind of grew into that. Um, Twinkle, Twinkle Little Star was the one that really stood, stands out. And I teach my children, my grandchildren, uh, that song. It's really, really special. Fast forward uh, to time to go to college. And it's my mother who actually picked my college. Uh, She picked Bates College for me and then made sure that I got there. Um, when it was time to graduate from college, she wrote me um, a note and 
she said, I have no idea what it is that you're about to do, which was to go to law school, but please know that um, your best has always been good enough for me. My mother uh, grew up, was born and raised in Topeka, Kansas, which is where my father is from as well. They got married, uh, started having kids very quickly, and she dropped out of college. So as I'm graduating from college, she does not have a college degree. And so when she said uh, she had no idea what I was going to be doing going to law school, she really meant it. She really had no idea what that meant. So I go to law school at Washington and Lee University School of Law in Lexington, Virginia, which is the heart of the Confederacy, for anybody who, who, who might have missed that. Um, and I'm one of, uh, they still were not allowing women at the undergrad school, and there were a few women in the law school. Long story short, I was one of very few black women in the law school. <clears throat> it was really hard. Uh, we tried to study together. We tried to make it together. Uh, good news is I graduated. And yes. And right after graduation, I came straight to Baltimore. I took the first job offer that I got, um, replicated what happened in law school. I end up at this law firm in Baltimore, and I'm the only black attorney. So obviously, I'm the only black woman attorney. Um, and that was okay. We you know, we, we dressed the way, you know, wore these bow blouses. It was a long time ago, kind of dressed like men at the top, women at the bottom. And uh, it was a really different time. 1986 was, um, of, you know, there, I've been practicing law for four years. Uh, I always did litigation, uh, tried cases, uh, defended companies. Learning the law is hard, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of stress, I remember times, you know, sitting behind my desk, it, it, hunkering down, chugging a bottle of Mylanta, you know, sit up, wipe the pink off your face, and, and keep going. It was really that hard. Um, but I thought that I loved it. Um, 86, it's time for my four-year review, and my review panel was the, you know, my direct report, um, who was a white male, <laughs> the hiring partner, who was a white male, and one other person who was a white male, and me. And uh, one of the people on the, in this group was a self-professed bigot. And I can share that because his own words to me were, I used to be a bigot, but now I'm not. And I thought, this is <laughs> really not, I don't think I bargained for this. So as we go along, um, the, the interview go, the, the review is, you're great at this, you're really good at that, need to do a little bit of work on this. Uh, we'd like to see more of that. Um, you know, this is okay, this is not. And, but they said, but ultimately, you know, you're just not a star. And I thought, I'm not a star? Um, I don't think I heard anything after that. I don't know what they said. It, it really didn't matter. I go back to my office sit at my desk, and I think, this is just not for me. Um, I, I was actually told I'm, I'm not a star, and it's not that I think I am, but to actually be told by you know, an old white male bigot <laughs> that I'm not a star, it just didn't align. It didn't align for me at all. So I got myself together. Um, my father, who was in the Marine Corps, had always said to all of us, if you're ever in trouble, find a Marine. Find a Marine. So as things go, as things go, 
one of the people that I admired the most is a guy named Ed Half, who is a lawyer and, when you know it, a Marine. So I called Mr. Half and I said, I really need to make a change. I need to um, move from this law firm that I'm in. Uh, is there any chance that you might meet with me? And he said, meet with you? Yes. Send your resume over. Um, sent my resume. Uh, he set up an interview. In three days, I had an offer. I'm like, that's pretty good for a non-shiny star. <laughs> that's really great. <laughs> so, so I go. I, I have this offer. Um, I accept it. I pack up my stuff. I remember thinking, I am so out of here. You know, I'm going to take my non-shiny self somewhere else and sparkle and spin in another area. So I do that. Um, go to this law firm. Within five years, I'm a full equity partner because I'm not a star, right? <laughs> I'm not a star. <laughs> so I become the first black woman to become a partner in this law firm and coincidentally the second black woman to become a partner in the whole state of Maryland. Not a star. <laughs> not a star. <laughs> um, the first one is still a really, really great friend of mine, um, Donna Jacobs. But anyway, um, it, it's great. Uh, I end up on the hiring committee. I do reviews. And one thing I never did is I never, ever told someone, you're not a star. We always emphasize the positives. Um, eventually, I went to another firm, um, started my own firm. And in 2017, I was asked to come to the city of Baltimore and serve as the first deputy city solicitor who was a woman. And I thought, oh, God, that's a big, big leap. Um, can I do that? And you start thinking about imposter syndrome. I'm not a star. It, I, you know, I don't know. But ultimately, I said yes. And so then I became the first woman to ever serve as deputy city solicitor for the, our beloved city, but I'm not a star. Um, in March of 2020, my uh, boss retired. And that meant, just by the functioning of the city charter, that I would become uh, acting city solicitor. Well, we've never had a woman do that either. <laughs> so even though I'm not a star, <laughs> I've become the city of Baltimore's first ever woman city solicitor, and um, which was amazing, just navigating everybody through the um, COVID pandemic, uh, writing all of the executive orders, uh, convening every day to talk about how we're going to respond to the COVID pandemic, and um, it was really, really hard. Eventually, we get a new mayor, and he asked me to um, become the director of the Office of Equity and Civil Rights, which is where John and I work. And I thought, uh, no, <laughs> that no, that you know, I don't think that's right for me because I want you to be the first, you know, chief equity officer for the city of Baltimore. And I thought that's not where I see myself. I don't think that's for me. And uh, Mayor Scott said to me, well, let's talk about you. And he walked me through so many of the things that I had done here in the city to advance justice and equity and righteousness. And um, it's rare where someone can hold a mirror up to you and you see your reflection. And I actually thought, you know what? He's right. And he said, you're the one I want. You're a star. And I know. 
I know. And I thought, you know what? And you know, it's no secret he could be my child. <laughs> and I thought he's so powerful that things that he said and how he persuaded me. So I said yes. And um, the job that I have now, I'm the city's first ever chief equity officer. Yes. <laughs> and my job is to make equity for the city across the city. And when I think about it, my real job is to make sure that the bigots in this world do not steal the dreams and ambitions of the black and brown children of the city of Baltimore. That's the star that I have become. Thank you. So it's interesting to think about Dana's version of I'll Show You versus David Simon's. You know, how would you how would you characterize the difference in their Venus and Mars, baby? <laughs> <laughs> Although I just got done saying that you had more of the David Simon. That's not true. I mean, I think you're more of the Dana Moore, like of just. Uh, I do think it's masculine, feminine. I hate to be yeah, interesting, so reductive, but I, I do. Yeah, I mean, I think also one is fueled by anger and the other is seems mm. more fueled by, um, Dana seems more fueled by just like a sense of justice. And, but like, isn't that rooted in anger? It's just like a, it's a next level way of dealing with, not yeah. to, not to, you know, I don't mean to, I mean, it's all yeah. basic human emotions. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, anyway, if you but all. I think, let me say this too. I think David... He's a wonderful rabble rouser, and we're, I'm so grateful he's on our side, and I love watching him on Twitter just get into it. But I think because David is, you know, not to, to sound so NPR about this, but he's a white male, right? And um, he had a, a lot of um, ability just to be angry and loud, and, and that mm -hmm. Dana didn't as mm -hmm. a woman of color mm -hmm. coming up during the time so mm -hmm. she had to come up with a like an alternative strategy for how to deal with these feelings yeah. that allowed her to ultimately be very successful yeah but she couldn't just play it like i'm angry yep yep that's a good point jessica hankin has just made a really insightful I did comment it, guys. she really I did, did. It. i think it's the kombucha <laughs> It's a the kombucha is a mixed blessing. It comes with clarity and burps. So, anyway, um, we want to thank the Wine Source, a wonderful wine, beer, and snack supplier in Hamden. We want to let you know you can visit stoopstorytelling.com to listen to stories and learn about our upcoming events. Um, you can find us on Facebook at Instagram at Stoop Storytelling Series. Thank you to Maureen Harvey for producing and to y'all for listening. We'll be back soon with more stories from the studio.